HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This is Capri Cafaro, host of Eat Your Heartland Out. And this week, we will introduce you to two people who are innovating how consumers access fresh food. Market Wagon co-founder Nick Carter joins the program to discuss how this virtual farmer's market helps strengthen agriculture and small business while providing fresh quality food to its consumers. And Emily Stucker tells us how her menu team at Farmer's Fridge helps make eating well easy, even when you're on the go. Emily, thanks so much for joining the program. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I have been really excited to talk to you for a long time because I am totally fascinated and, and frankly inspired by Farmer's Fridge and what y'all do. Um, but for folks that maybe are not uh, a Farmer's Fridge enthusiast or don't know what, what uh, Farmer's Fridge is all about, um, tell us a little bit about um, what you do and uh, how Farmer's Fridge got started. Yeah. So, and I'm so glad to hear that you're such a fan. That's awesome. Um, as we've grown over the last 10 years, it's been really incredible to just connect with everyone that has come across one. And it's becoming more and more common for someone to be like, oh, Farmer's Fridge. I walked by that in the airport. I love <laughs> right. you guys. So that's so awesome. Um, yeah. So Farmer's Fridge, we were founded about 10 years ago. Um, and our mission is to make health, fresh, healthy food as accessible as a candy bar. And I really love that kind of visual that that gives you because that's what we are. We are a company of refrigerated vending machines uh, across the country that instead of stocked with your typical Snickers and chips and things like that, you can find salads, grain bowls, wraps, sandwiches, healthy snacks, uh, and things that um, you know are good for you in place of the stuff that typically isn't in vending machines across the country. And our founder, Luke, started the company about 10 years ago when he was traveling around the Midwest specifically, he was driving around, he was a traveling salesman and was having a really hard time finding healthy food on the go. And he found himself eating a lot from vending machines at either production facilities he was visiting or, uh, you know, rest stops on the highway, uh, 7-Elevens, that kind of thing. And um, kind of noticed this huge gap in our food system of fresh, healthy food being accessible, both at a price point that's affordable for the majority of um, consumers, but then also location-wise, you kind of have these big consolidated pockets of restaurants and, you know, QSR, quick service restaurants, that kind of thing. But there's sort of this huge gap in the middle where it's really hard to find produce and fresh, healthy food on the go. Yeah, no question about it. And, uh, you know, I, and the airport just seems like the most perfect place for it, too, because particularly now, since it's so hard, you know, to to get a meal on board an air, airline any, anymore, no matter what class of service that you're flying, um, it's it, it's so tough to be able to eat healthy um, when you're on the road. And I know this because I'm always, always, always on the road, which is, again, why I'm excited about Farmer's Fridge. Um, so such a good idea. Um, how is what does your footprint look like now? 
Yeah, that's a great question. It's it's changed a lot uh, over the last 10 years. So when uh, Luke, our founder, started it, it was one vending machine in a food court. I don't even think that food court exists anymore in downtown <laughs> Chicago. Uh, and then say COVID changed a lot of things, I'm sure, uh, with yep. that kind of space. But uh, we now have over a thousand farmers fridges across the country. Um, we have expanded outside of just the Midwest. So we are in um, Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Ohio. We're in the Northeast market, New Jersey, New York, Boston, DC, Philly, kind of all the major markets you would expect. We've expanded to Texas. We're in Austin, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio. And then we've also hit the West Coast in LA and San Diego. And we're continuing to expand. Um, you can typically find farmers fridges in, I think you mentioned airports. That's kind of where, um, you know, most people recognize us of just, there's that big billboard, you're in a rush, everything's closed, everything's like $15 and or more, and there's a giant line. And so farmers fridge is a really awesome um, offering in airports that, uh, you know, consumers find very, very valuable. We're also in um, other, other verticals, we call them, but college yep. campuses, hospitals and office buildings are kind of our main ones for uh, fridge placements. And then we've recently expanded into retail as well. I've noticed that. Yeah, yeah. So it's been definitely um, an adventure over the last year. It's a very different uh, business and channel than our fridge network where we kind of own everything end to end. But we are currently in um, Midwest, Costco's, and Targets, and then we're working on sort of other expansion with other retailers and then other markets um, as we're expanding that channel as well. That's that's really unbelievable. Now, has that changed um, kind of your offerings? Um, usually in the vending machines, you see, you know, salads and, you know, they come in these really, you know, cool little jars. Um, how has, or if it has changed at all, how has it changed um, your uh, menu offerings going into retail? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it honestly has not changed it much yet. Um, that's part of kind of the, the offering is, you know, we have these kind of single serve, they're recyclable um, jars uh, and their salads, bowls, as I mentioned, we're leveraging that in the retail environment. So in the same way that you might um, purchase a bunch of items from a fridge, you can buy the same things at Costco and Target. We found that to work really well for us. I think, you know, as we think about expanding and kind of solidifying that channel, it is a different purchase occasion, right? You're potentially right. stocking up for the week. It might not be immediate consumption, although I do think we do. There are a lot of people that, you know, buy it and then go home right away or they eat it for lunch as they're kind of doing their errands out of the house. Uh, but I, I could definitely see other innovation platforms happening in the near future to support retail. But right now, yep. you know, the fridges are our core business. We want them to continue to be our core business. And I'll talk a little bit about this of why that's necessary, just in terms of the network and the systems we've built on our fridges that retail kind of rides on top of, but could never exist on its own. Right. And so we're continuing to prioritize fridges and then to whatever extent we can add on retail and continue to innovate other options for consumers under the Farmer's Fridge brand. We'll definitely continue to do that as we scale. Mm -hmm. Well, let's stick on the fridges then. I mean, you, you said you would, would talk a little bit about that that model and why it's you know still remaining the, the core of the business. Tell us why. Yeah. So everyone always asks, you know, how did you think of this? Like why salad in a vending machine? It kind of feels like an oxymoron. You know, you're used to vending machines being a not refrigerated and then also carrying, you know, items that have probably been in there for months, maybe years. Uh, and so we do definitely run into this stigma of like, how do I know it's fresh? Is it going to taste good? And so- right. That's really what we've been working on over the last 10 years is kind of breaking down that stigma and really building that trust for our brand of the freshness and the quality. And um, we've come a long way and people are, you know, more more comfortable with it now. Um, if you think about it, the, the reason restaurants can't go into a lot of the locations where our fridges are is because the unit economics would never work. If you think about the overhead for a restaurant, you need, you know, a, a lot of space. Um, you know, our fridge is a couple feet by a couple feet. You just need a, you know, GCFI plug-in outlet and you're good right. to go. 
um, you would need labor, you would need rent, and the traffic for that, that, that would be needed to make those economics work would never be enough in the office building. And they would never be enough in, um, you know, the healthcare uh, lobby outside of the cafeteria, that kind of thing. And so that's really where the vending machine comes in, where all of a sudden now, like we have consolidated the labor and the rent and all of those things in the food production. Mm-hmm. And we just need to distribute to that vending machine. And all of a right. sudden the traffic that's necessary uh, makes that those unit economics work in a way that we can place fridges where most restaurants that serve fresh food can't go. That makes total sense. And I mean, you're really serving a need, um, you know, uh, as you said, I mean, because that that is really not, you're serving niches where, um, other providers are not necessarily going to go because it doesn't make dollars and cents. Um, and you, you've managed to scale it in a way um, and you're bringing a, a quality product to those, to those folks that are, you know, accessing it through whether it is, you know, particularly the, um, the vending machines. Um, but then, of course, as, as you've also expanded into retail, uh, you know, it seems to me you're probably helping a lot of people with uh, their weekly meal prep, right? <laughs> For sure. Yeah, we hope so. We hope so. Um, Yeah. And the size of the prize for, you know, vending machine placement is enormous. I think that's the other thing. If you think about um, there are over 7 million vending machines in the United States, which is kind of crazy to think about how many people eat out of a vending machine every day. That's a good point. And the closest, I think the, the kind of QSR restaurant that has the most locations in the U.S. is Subway. And that's 20,000. So if you think about that gap between the, you know, largest location unit that's serving fresh food and a vending machine, that gap between 20,000 and 7 million is enormous. And that's really the sweet spot of where Farmer's Fridge is serving and where we will continue to expand to serve that need over uh, the coming years. Yeah. So, I mean... I am, again, continuously impressed uh, by what you all are doing. And I want to kind of switch gears on our conversation about the actual product, right? We've talked a little bit about the business model and, and how, you know, how you get this product out uh, into people's hands, into their mouths, right? But you are the VP for menu. And so we have to pick your brain about how you develop the products that you sell and how you source those products to make sure that they, you know, come in fresh and stay fresh. Yeah, yeah. So um, I could definitely talk about this for a while if you get me started. Um, so, so yeah. So I, I lead I lead the menu team here at Farmers Fridge, kind of from the initial uh, ideation and recipe development all the way through commercialization, and that's been really an intentional choice we've made to keep those functions integrated in the way that we're organized because we uh, need to move so quickly and so much of. The product tasting good when it gets to a fridge is operational given the number of constraints we're working in. So we're really intentional about the recipes we create. Our overall goal is to make fruits and vegetables more accessible to more people. So we want to reduce the bad stuff. We want to increase the good stuff. Um, And this requires working within those tight set of constraints to make that possible. And I can talk a little bit about those. The, the first one is, you know, the food has to taste good. It sounds obviously very, uh, you know, obvious, I guess, but uh, we, we, we can't just steam broccoli and put it in a jar, right? Nobody would crave that. Nobody would want to eat it. And so as we're thinking about nutrition guardrails, that's really our number one priority. Uh, all of our salads have at least two servings of fruits and vegetables. Our bowls have at least the other items and kind of meals have at least one. And so that's really what we're prioritizing. While at the same time, uh, we don't use any weird stuff. So we're not using artificial preservatives or flavors. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way that we're kind of getting the longer shelf life out of our items is a lot of testing. We're testing different Mm -hmm. cuts. There's certain ingredients that we don't use anymore because we know that they would never make it more than two days before they're just not good anymore. Um, We're testing different layering. So you'll see our salads, you know, there's a lot of them have sort of a grain base on the bottom that's really helpful in kind of absorbing any moisture that might come out of the vegetables on top of it. And we're creating a moisture barrier, we kind of call it, with the shredded cheese that sits between the vegetables and the lettuce. 
So um, we're really we're really thoughtful of how we're not only choosing the ingredients and building the recipes, but also just the structure of the ingredients as they go into the jar is really important in creating food that tastes good, but then also lasts the amount of time it needs to to make it to the end consumer and still taste fresh, fresh and delicious. How do you figure that out? I mean, how much testing and what does that testing look like? Like, I'm just kind of fascinated. I mean, <laughs> you you know, you 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 know, get something out of a vending machine, or you pick it up at a store, and you kind of take for granted, like here it is. You just kind of maybe assuming, okay, this is it looks nice from the outside, and it packs everything into this jar. But it sounds like there's a lot more thought that goes into it than than that. Yes, yeah, for sure. So we. We eat a lot. <laughs> we we do a lot of recipe development. We're constantly, you know, playing around with different stuff. We've built a pretty turnkey kind of internal testing process that we use. So we we have built our own sort of set of uh, methodology and uh, test criteria that we focus on. So we do a lot of internal tasting panels. We'll have um, you know people in the office come. Well, we need a certain number of data points, but then we know what questions to ask. They're rating these things on a scale of one to five over the course of a couple of days. And we now have built up a pretty uh, substantial data system with some benchmarks. So we, we tend to know and kind of be able to predict now whether something is going to work at scale. And we'll test that throughout the life of the kind of innovation process. So the first part is a lot of just testing in the recipe development kitchen, right? So does this have legs? Is this something that people are interested in? We might send out sort of an email or a poll to our customers and do a, a concept test to confirm that, yep, people want this flavor. Or if we're deciding between two different flavors, we'll kind of get some input there. And then we'll kind of move it through, you know, most companies uh, that work in product development have some type of stage gate process, which is basically just, you know, the stages that uh, a item or project moves through as it kind of checks off boxes. So, okay, yep, this is a, a concept and a flavor people want. Great, let's move it to the next round of testing. Now we're going to actually build recipes and get people to give feedback on the recipe. Is it delivering on what the, the concept is? Okay, check. Then we'll move it to okay, can we make this in our production facility in a way that matches what we made just in our? you know, mm -hmm. test kitchen here. And so we'll kind of like go through rounds and rounds of iteration. Um, we're typically working on a, a 20 week development cycle from, you know, kind of initial recipe development to product in fridge. And then because we own everything and we're not, you know, contracting with another manufacturer or anything like that, we're pretty easily able to iterate if we see customer feedback come in or once it's in production, we have some checkpoints after it launches for our team to just continue to taste it, keep our eye on it. Is this meeting what we had initially intended it to uh, originally in, in the development process? And uh, yeah, we kind of we kind of take all of that data and continue to tweak until we're happy with it. And we get that feedback from consumers, both in terms of the qualitative feedback that they send us directly, but then also obviously sales you know and selling of that yeah. item. Exactly, exactly. And you, you learn that pretty quickly now. Sure. Is there anything that has been uh, in the fridges for the last 10 years that has been a constant? Oh, wow. Um, there are some, so our, our berries and granola Greek yogurt that one has been on the menu for 10 years. It's gone through a couple iterations and it seems so simple, but it's just really good quality yogurt that we mix honey and some Madagascar vanilla into. And then there's fresh cut apples, blueberries, and a house-made granola. Um, oh, very nice. I'm trying to think what else. There's a couple things that have been on, but we do a lot of rotation too. So we'll pull something off, put it back on just to you know keep it fresh and make sure we only have a certain number of slots in the fridges. And so right. for our customers that are coming back, you know, every week, they want some variety too. And so we're kind of constantly taking a look at that, making sure that our assortment is fresh and uh, supplemented with some, you know, LTOs and seasonal items that highlight seasonal ingredients and flavors and that kind of thing. 
I'm glad you brought up the seasonal ingredients because that, that was going to be what I was going to ask you next since you were talking about, you know, that regular rotation, which makes sense, obviously, for, you know, for the end user, the consumer who does want variety, particularly if you're, for example, in an office building as opposed to, you know, uh, an airport, maybe you're only going through every so often as opposed to, you know, that's where you are five days a week. But, yeah. um, you, you know, I'm curious about the seasonality of the ingredients you choose and, and how you um, decide to, you know, incorporate, uh, you know, produce that happens to be in season? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and it's, it's gotten, it, it's changed and gotten both easier in some ways and challenging in others as we've scaled, because the, just the volumes we're talking about now, um, are helpful in some ways, you know, in terms of buying power and contracting full truckloads eventually and things like that. But it's also tricky because if you run out or something comes in and, you know, the, the wildfires in California last year was really challenging sure. across the entire produce supply chain. But, you know, if all of a sudden the green leaf comes in and all the tips are burnt, um, it's safe, but it's not you know, not the best foot forward in terms of quality, but that's the whole market. And so what do you do when you need 10,000 pounds of green leaf? You know, like there isn't, you can't just run to Whole Foods anymore and kind of buy up what they have on the shelf. Um, so uh, the, the biggest thing, you know, is making sure that our, our produce and incoming products, seasonal or not, um, they tend to go kind of hand in hand in terms of quality though, is that it's high quality and safe. So we have a very rigorous food safety and supplier approval process that starts actually way before the ingredients even get to our facility. Um, we're obviously washing the produce ourselves. We're putting all of those, you know, we're we're cooking things and roasting them and we're chopping them and we're kind of doing all of that in-house to make sure that A, it's safe and the, the quality is good, but also from a shelf life perspective, that's that if we sourced lettuce pre-cut, that's already lost a couple days of shelf life by the time it gets to us. And so that time from the time that we wash it, chop it and get it into a jar and then ship it out that night to fridges needs to be as short as possible. And that's sort of key in uh, the freshness and keeping the items fresh in the fridge. In terms of the ingredients, a lot of them are evergreen, right? So we've been really good about in order for them to be high quality and safe, but also reliable. We can't, it's really hard to turn things on and off really quickly at our volumes now. And so we've built this sort of standard pantry of ingredients that are kind of evergreen. So we know that generally it might switch between green Arcadian and green leaf, or maybe we'll supplement with some spinach or some cabbage during the transition months. For those that don't know, there's two main growing seasons um, and they kind of alternate between Salinas, California and Yuma, Arizona. And um, during that transition time is when you typically see uh, a good amount of kind of quality issues as the, the whole region is transferring over to the other region. And so we try to build in some flexibility to supplement to make sure that that quality continues to be good. And then we're focusing on seasonal flavors. So we have an apple pecan salad right now that's using, you know, honey crisp apples and Fuji apples because those are in season and really high quality. So we kind of supplement both seasonally, but the, the biggest thing is making sure that we have a reliable and safe ingredient supply that we get, that our R&D team can kind of pull from. Sounds like you all thought of absolutely everything. <laughs> um, and, and it's no wonder, obviously, why you have such a, a strong quality product. Um, you take a lot of time and a lot of care, um, which is just absolutely fantastic. What, what's on the horizon now for Farmer's Fridge? I mean, we've talked about retail, we've talked about other things, but, you know, I, I know that, um, you know, part of the objective is to make sure as we started this conversation that healthy food is as accessible as, you know, a Snickers bar or candy bar or whatever. Um, and then, you know, you mentioned the, uh, the fact that the jars are also recyclable. Um, you know, how much um, is sustainability important for the future of Farmer's Fridge? Yeah, that's it's a wonderful question. Sustainability is so important to us. Um, it's it's really it, it's tricky, right? Because there are trade offs. Um, 
in in every kind of conversation that you talk about for sustainability and we've we we spend a lot of time and energy and care and thinking about those things the packaging is one that we get obviously there it's plastic right it's recyclable plastic um we know that plastic isn't ideal we've looked at a bunch of different uh options and we have a team that's kind of continuing to scope other options but at the end of the day our mission is again to make fruits and vegetables more accessible to more people and so part of that is one doing it in a way that is cost effective so that most people can you know it's an approachable price point uh, it's about half the cost of your kind of average item at sweet green um, if you do a comparison and that's really important um, the second piece is the shelf life so making sure that items can hold up for as long as they need to to get to a machine in these areas that typically um, there isn't access to fresh, healthy food. And so that is part of our challenge is balancing those sustainability goals and initiatives uh, in a way that does not detract from um, that overall mission. Mm -hmm. One kind of anecdotal um, piece on packaging that I like to use as an example just to kind of make it tangible is we, in the past, I think it was a couple years ago, we actually changed, we had a, a wrap, you know, we have a, a Baja chicken wrap. We've had a couple different flavors of wraps over time. Um, we actually changed that package to be made of compostable cardboard in a mm. way to try to reduce, we kind of overall want to reduce our virgin plastic usage. And that was one way to do so. But one of the unintended side effects was uh, it was less airtight, right? Because compostable materials, a little bit more porous. porous and yeah. so the shelf life went, was cut in half. And so we actually ended up with more food waste as a result, which is obviously obviously the last thing we want, right? right? And so on the surface, it's like, oh, that's more sustainable because it's compostable versus a plastic jar. But at the end of the day, we made it less, we made that product less accessible and we created more food waste. So we're kind of, we need to look at the whole system and that's something that we're constantly doing. Um, we've recently moved all of our, plastic jars to incorporate post-consumer recycled plastic, right? To reduce wow. virgin plastic output, create more demand downstream. We're partnering with a packaging supplier in Wisconsin, who's been an incredible partner that actually collects plastic back and has their own wash system that then can create no 100% recycled plastic. And that's what we're using for our, um, our sandwiches today in a way that doesn't degrade shelf life. So these things take a while, but yeah. um, it's easier on the it's easy on the surface to point to things and say, "Oh, that's bad, that's bad." But at the end of the day, we need to achieve our overall mission and make sure that we're not making sort of a knee jerk decision that seems right from a sustainability perspective, but um, on the whole is actually worse off in general. So we're kind of constantly balancing all these things. Sure, no, that I mean, again, I am consistently impressed by how much thought goes into uh, and care goes into, um, the, you know, the creation of the product, uh, the sourcing of everything that goes into what you provide to the consumer and and ultimately sticking with that core mission. One final question that I, I was just thinking of as we've been talking about uh, the fact that, you know, particularly the, the fridges are in places where maybe um, fresh food in particular is not uh, readily accessible. Has there ever been any discussions about um, integrating farmer's fridge in a way that might help um, serve food deserts in, you know, whether it's uh, inner city communities or even rural communities that may grow our food, but have to, people have to drive, you know, maybe the, the only access to food they have is, you know, a gas station, um, you know, with um, some limited grocery items. Yeah, for sure. It's definitely been an ongoing discussion. We've um, done initiatives on and off over the, the years to address this. It's definitely something that we would love to get more into on the horizon. I think, you know, one of the challenges, it, it would require a good amount of kind of community embedment and yeah. partnership. And so we've talked to, you know, like prior conversations with uh, health insurance companies and mm -hmm. community centers and things like that, because it would just 
you know, plopping a fridge down and saying, here you go. Uh, you know, right, that's not going to necessarily make it any more accessible than anything else just it's there. Right, exactly. And so you kind of have to start at the community level. And so mm-hmm. that is something that is certainly on the horizon. We needed to build the network first. And so last year we launched, I think, 12 out of our 22 markets were just launched last year. And so that's what the last couple of years have truly been about is just gain the, the the expansion of our network that we can now start to layer all these things on because there's already a farmer's fridge van driving past that location that you're talking about. And so right. all of a sudden now the density that we can build on the routes and the markets we're in, that's where you start to layer on um, those types of initiatives and the opportunity for that is huge as we continue to expand. So it's definitely something that um, I hope that we can get into uh, sooner rather than later. I figured it would probably be at least in the mix, given given the mission uh, and vision that uh, that Farmers Fridge has for you know its communities and the communities that it serves. This has been such a blast, Emily. I really enjoyed this conversation. I know our listeners will as well. Uh, if they want to learn more about Farmers Fridge and maybe where one might be in their community, how can they learn more? Yes. Yeah. So uh, you can visit us at farmersfridge.com. We also have an app um, that will, uh, you can type in your location. It'll show you your nearest fridge. Definitely look out for us in any airport that you're in. We're typically typically in them. We're in a lot of them now. Uh, and uh, yeah, you can. we also have all of our social channels as well that you can obviously look us up on, but um, the app is probably the, the best place to go and the easiest way you can order directly from that and find the nearest fridge near you. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Emily. Thanks for sharing Farmer Fridge's story and for, I think, making us all a little bit more hungry um, and willing to grab for a salad as opposed to a candy bar. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really had fun today. This is Eat Your Heartland Out with me, Capri Cafaro. After the break, I'll welcome my next guest, Nick Carter, co-founder of Market Wagon. Nick, welcome. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I have known about Market Wagon for a little while, and it is really an intriguing idea. What was the spark for for Market Wagon? Uh, It was pretty simple. Uh, I'm a farmer myself. I'm a fourth-generation Indiana farmer, grew up on a Mm. farm, Um, left when I was 18, uh, kind of as a statistic. You know, most of the people in my generation aren't staying in agriculture, Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a well-known issue for uh, U.S. farmers for a long time. And I saw an opportunity to kind of, I know it sounds trite, but save the family farm by going direct to consumer. And mm. the, what we needed was the ability to have a marketplace to find the consumers and then get the product to them. And uh, today, over 1,500 other farmers and food artisans are using the same. So how does this work for a consumer? Uh, you know, you go online, you find... Uh, you know, market wagon, then what happens? (laughs) Yeah. So uh, it's an, it's a marketplace where you can, uh, first thing is you, you put in your zip code uh, or select a delivery area that you know you're within so that uh, all the food you're shopping is from local farms that are right near you. Um, And then you're shopping from all the different local farmers that are in your area. Uh, You can create a basket with uh, products from, all the different vendors. You can get bread from one place and ground beef or meats from one farm that you like their, their growing practices and eggs from a different and some produce from a different farmer. Uh, one single checkout and then our system uh, kind of aggregates all of those products and brings it to you in one delivery. That seems almost too good to be true, right? <laughs> uh, the, the fact that you can really have that one-stop shop and you're able to, to do that with individual vendors, producers, farmers uh, is, is really very, very unique. Uh, how many markets do you actually serve with, uh, through Market Wagon? Right now, we're in 19 states um, with just 22 fulfillment centers or markets, if you will. Um, so throughout the Midwest, that includes, you know, Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, Cincinnati, Cleveland, Columbus. Um, and in every one of those, it's somewhat of a you know, rough math and an hour radius around those those uh, city centers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the real key is the technology that, that makes it possible. And not not to give away any state secrets, but, uh, you know, how does 
this work on the back end? I mean, you know, how do you get all these different products to one place and keep them fresh? Yeah, well, I mentioned that I left the farm when I was 18. And um, the the kind of interlude in that story is that I uh, became a tech entrepreneur and mm. uh, was a software engineer, had my own software startups, um, exited successfully. Uh, but in that process, you know, gained the experience of how to uh, kind of create uh, very powerful software that allows us to do just what we're talking about. So it's, mm-hmm. it's really the efficiencies are driven by the technology. Um, there's mm-hmm. seven years in the making and we still haven't perfected it. I mean, there's a lot of, of uh, iterations that continue to take place. But um, the long and short of it is, you know, it's a matter of uh, moving data, uh, making sure that we know exactly what's available from the producers. You know, you don't want to buy lettuce from a farmer um, if they don't have enough to supply all the orders. And so there's right. uh, the supply and inventory, if you will, uh, what's available to be ordered. And then conveying those orders out on a timely basis. And, and the big thing uh, that we use is batching. So mm-hmm. orders could be delivered either once or twice a week. Uh, so it's not like next day delivery where we're bringing it to you the day that you order it. There's a little bit of planning involved. And that allows us to batch all of the orders together from uh, different consumers uh, going to different farms and then bring them to one centralized location where they can all be kind of remixed together uh, into the, uh, the different orders. Mm-hmm. How do you identify the the producers that you work with? Um, every time we go to a market, it's you know it's pretty convenient. The kinds of producers that we want to work with, um, they all congregate every Saturday morning in a few random church parking lots around the city. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we start with the farmers markets, and um, you know what we've discovered is that the online farmer's market, market wagon, is not competitive to farmer's markets. The kinds of consumers who shop at physical farmer's markets are there for the experience. They like shopping in that way, but that there are a lot of other consumers who want to buy this type of food uh, raised this way, but the farmer's market itself is doesn't fit their lifestyle for one reason or another. And so e-commerce is a new frontier. It's a new channel for these producers. And so we can uh, bring them more customers, expand their opportunity to grow with, uh, and sell what they grow on their farm. And uh, that's how we go. Do you find that that's an easy sell for, for farmers and producers? Or do you find that it's met with hesitation because maybe they're not used to selling you know, in an e-commerce way? So it's unfamiliar and they don't really know what to expect. Yeah, there's, there's always a lot of questions with something new. And e-commerce is, is definitely um, you know, not first nature to a lot of farmers. Um, the, really the only reason why somebody would not be a market wagon is because they don't have what we call marginal supply, which means Mm -hmm. they're selling out of everything at the farmer's market anyways. And there's a lot of farmers that do that. You know, they, they pack up and they go to the farmer's market on Saturday and they, they sell everything they could possibly grow. Um, that's not going to be a good vendor on market wagon unless they have more land they're just not planting yet because they need more demand, right? They need more places to sell it. Um, but the kinds of farms that are that are trying to find more and more sales, this is a, an easy, easy uh, opportunity mm-hmm. for them. What about the markets that you actually serve? I mean, how do you identify those centralized hubs, the Indianapolis's, the Cincinnati's, the Cleveland's, whatever? Um, you know, what process do you use to say, well, this is a viable market for us to you know, deliver in. Yeah. Well, it, it's not as sophisticated as it might sound like it should be. Um, we were a Midwest company, first of all. So we've just kind of spread emanating out from Indianapolis like ripples on a pond. And if you look at the, the area that we serve today, you can just easily see how we've just spread across the Midwest terrain. And as far as where we can put one, we've kind of figured out mostly just through trial and error that uh, we need roughly a million people within an hour's drive radius. Uh, Other than anything lower than that, um, and we'd love to be able to serve, uh, but the reality is there's just not enough demand concentration to make the logistics work. Uh, So we have had to close a couple of hubs in some smaller areas. We we used to operate in Evansville, Indiana. It's about Mm 600,000 people. It's a decent-sized middle city, but it just wasn't enough critical mass to get it going. That's surprising. And it's a college town, right? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a small Evansville University is down there. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, I, so you know, you would think that that might be something that uh, would would create demand, but you, as you said, it's going to be some trial and error uh, through that process. Uh, you you kind of touched upon this earlier because you you had said that Market Wagon isn't necessarily a you know competitor to the traditional farmers market. Do you find that it is complementary to to the traditional farmers market? Yeah, very much so. Um, the traditional farmers markets one day a week. Um, and what we've seen with vendors who are good at tracking their data, right, and, and have paid close attention, they're reporting to us that they, the same customer who may buy from them at a farmers market once every two or three weeks when they can make it, once they join Market Wagon, that customer still comes to the farmer's market, loves to visit with them, loves to come to their booth. But in the intervening weeks, when it doesn't fit their schedule, they've got soccer games with the kids, they're traveling, whatever it is, they can right. place an order on Market Wagon. So suddenly they're being able to serve that customer through multiple channels by giving them multiple ways of getting their products. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Now that makes that makes total sense. And um, do you find, uh, I mean, and how much do you know about your consumer, the people that shop on Market Wagon? Do you get statistics on whether or not they're driven by, um, you know, healthy food, slow food, wanting to know where their food comes from, uh, organic, you know, um, value-based production? I mean, what do you know about the people that use Market Wagon? We know quite a bit. We know that um, they're not as interested in organics as you know, the American consumer had been in over the last decade. And that's actually just going with the overall consumer trend. Organic is kind of losing some of its, yep. its heft as it gets watered down a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, the consumers on Market Wagon are interested in quality overall. Um, they want good food. So, and they want to know where it comes from. It's a matter of trust. It's confidence. And what I've said for years is that um, certification, such as organic or any other kind of label that you could slap onto a package is kind of a poor substitute for transparency. And when relationship is really there, when you really know where something comes from, that's when the trust is the highest. And that's what our consumers are looking for is high trust, high confidence food. That's good quality. Now, how do you replicate that trust when you're going through a web portal? Because, you know, yes, you can like learn a little bit about the individual vendors, but you're not, you're not chatting with them, you know, in the uh, church parking lot, as, mm-hmm. as you might in the physical space. So how do you build that trust with, well, that, uh, in, with the individual consumers and the producers? That's a really interesting topic and you're exactly right. It's one of the things we've spent a lot of time working on that makes uh, Market Wagon vastly different from your typical just e-commerce, which amounts to being a sophisticated catalog on your screen, right? Yep, if this yep. was just a catalog with prices, then there's no relationship. Even if you have like a, a bio or you can click the little info circle and read about the farm or see a cute photo of their family. But what we created was social media-like features on the shopping oh. platform. So oh, cool. you not only are shopping for products, but you can see who grew them and then follow your favorite vendors. The vendors can post to what's called a fresh feed. You can see updates about what's going on on their farm. Uh, and you you just mentioned, you, you said you're not chatting with them in the church parking lot, but you are chatting with them online. There's a live yeah. messaging back and forth with the farmers. So if you ask a question about the lettuce, how was it raised, what's the spray, um, whatever the, the case may be, the answer is coming from the farmer. And they're, they're directly interacting with the consumers on their website and building a relationship and building that trust that way. That's, that's brilliant. Uh, and is that, did you start out with a feature like that or did it take time to, to get to that point to say, you know what, we need this interactive feature? It was pretty early on. I won't say we started with it, um, but it was introduced in 2017. We, we first launched out of beta in 2016. Uh, so this was one of the first things that we knew we needed. If we're going to be out there saying that local food is valuable because of the trust and the relationship that exists between the producer and the consumer, then we have to be... Uh, facilitating that in every way that we can. And so the chat was, and, and Q&A was uh, the first iterations, the the fresh feed, the social media ability to follow vendors and see posts from them came along in 2018. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've been in, in there uh, from the very, very early days. Mm-hmm. How has Market Wagon changed from, you know, its, its beta uh, iteration to today? Well, the biggest one is moving to home delivery. Um, mm-hmm. Prior to the pandemic, uh, over 50% of our orders were pickups, 
Um, the orders would be aggregated at the fulfillment center, and then we would route them out to various community area, you know, uh, pickup locations in communities. And it could be small retail shops that had a complimentary kind of mission, maybe a butcher shop, maybe a local chocolate shop or a coffee shop. Um, and sometimes just, you know, a, a local insurance agent or somebody who wanted to get visibility uh, and, and was interested in helping the community. And so we had pickups. Well, all of a sudden in March 2021, uh, <laughs> nobody wanted anybody walking in their doors, right? And so home delivery became huge. Now, we had always offered home delivery, but it was, like I said, less than half of the, of the consumers. And suddenly it was everything. And that drove us to have to create a new wave of technology, um, route enhancements, uh, kind of it's called a traveling salesman algorithm. You've got to use the software to design your routes and drop-offs because the efficiencies were key. And uh, we innovated quite a, quite a bit there in the early parts of the pandemic in order to be able to keep up with the home delivery demand. Wow. I, well, that's yet another example of how the pandemic has uh, I think, uh, sped up innovations in a number of different industries, this one included, uh, yeah. that, that is really interesting. So, I mean, and I can, I can imagine that, you know, people would want to, I mean, you know, people were obviously relying so heavily on delivery services. Do you, do you see now that, you know, things have, uh, ostensibly, quote unquote, gone back to normal in many ways, um, that uh, the delivery side is, um, uh, dissipated a bit or, uh, which let me actually back up. Do you still offer a pickup service at all? We don't. Uh, well, with one qualification, we do in a few, what we call legacy markets where the pickups never shut down. Uh, there were some locations that continued offering pickup and they participate with us, but in all of the markets that we've added over the last four years, We've just done home delivery, and uh, even where pickup is available, it's no longer being adopted at the same rate. So um, are people, quote unquote, going back to normal? Mm, not really. They've kind of uh, realized how convenient home delivery is and yep. have stuck with that. Uh, totally. And I, I have to say I'm, I'm guilty of that myself. I mean, particularly even with, uh, with curbside pickup in a number of places, I, I find that that is, you know, when you have uh, you know busy family, busy life, and you're like, okay, I'm not going to spend half an hour in the store, whether it's the grocery store or anyplace else. You just put it in the app and you pick it up, and that's just that, you know. So uh, I think that people in their own lives recognize that the convenience, no question about it. What do you see uh, Market Wagon doing in the next five years? Well, we think that every community in the U.S. should have a, um, the ability to order local food online. And Market Wagon's unique logistics approach is the way to do that. So we're continuing to find ways to, to open new markets to expand further. Uh, but that ripples on the pond approach that I, I described earlier, it gets harder the further away those ripples get. So we're exploring ideas like franchising, um, mm. partnering with other local organizations that are embedded in the communities. Because, you know, at the end of the day, we our mission is local food. But if we're the out-of-towners and we really don't belong there, then it's pretty notable. And we want to make sure that right. we are supporting um, the groups, the organizations that are have been embedded in the communities where we're serving. And so we're looking at ways to do that, whether it's franchises, partnerships, or what have you. That that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, any any uh, new markets that are on the horizon that you want to share? Uh, nothing new right now. We are, uh, we're kind of, stalled on opening new markets while we you know, figure out what's the best way to do that. Makes sense. Uh, this is this has been so interesting. I, I um, like I said, you know, coming from I'm in northeastern Ohio and uh, living in Columbus for a while as well, I've been familiar with the market wagon and its its general approach, and I'm so glad that I've had an opportunity to speak with you directly to learn a little bit more about its origin story, uh, you know, its 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 future, and really kind of the the, the very unique space that it occupies in the market. Uh, I, you know, you have, I think, such a promising future and such an important mission uh, for so many as consumers, I think, continue to want to demand, um, you know, access to fresh food as well as, you know, food that is so local, locally where they know where it comes from, as we've, we discussed. And then, of course, we, which we haven't totally talked about, I want to do this before I let you go, just touch upon 
the the role that something like Market Wagon plays in helping, you know, we'll start we'll, we'll end kind of where we where you started saving the small family farm. What kind of economic impact does this have for for our for our smaller farmers that aren't huge CAFOs and and large you know uh, industrial farms? Uh, well, thanks for <laughs> thanks for letting me share the mission because that is what's most important to me. We can talk about technology and logistics and pickups and trends, but at the end of the day. What we're doing is giving small family farms uh, an avenue to create diversified income. So I'll, I'll use my own farm as an example because it's really a great example and it, it is a kind of an archetype of what we're seeing among all the vendors that we work with, which is, you know, my dad still raises grain, row crops. You know, mm. he, he's been outfitted to do that uh, since the early 80s. That's kind of the direction that a lot of farms went. He only has a few hundred acres, so there's some corn and soy. Uh, that he's doing, which is traditional Midwestern row cropping, but he's able to switch to non-GMO corn. So he keeps back some of that corn and we use that to feed um, the hogs and a little bit to the beef as well. And by raising beef on some of the land that's not as um, uh, you know good for row cropping, he's got a second revenue stream, if you will. Mm-hmm. It's diversified. And if the markets are down for grain, um, then we can increase the headcount of hawks and you can hedge, if you will. You have the ability to play the commodities um, in a more intelligent and, and holistic way and, and create income that wasn't there before. Now, for someone like me, without this direct-to-consumer channel, when I turned 18, farming wasn't even really an option. Uh, there wasn't right. hardly enough income for dad, much less for me to enter the enterprise. Well, now... What we've built on our own family farm is gaining enough steam to where it's a second full-time income. And by the time my kids are full grown, um, they're going to have the option if they choose. I can't predict what they want to do, but they'll have that as a choice to enter the family business and and be a farmer again. And that's the key thing. What we're seeing in the the farming community, the impact of Market Wagon as a direct-to-consumer channel is we're seeing uh, for the first time in a long time, Next generation farmers, people in my generation or younger, um, being able to have the choice to enter into the family business, not by getting in 2,000 acres and, and creating a, you know, a grain income that way, but hey, can I carve off these 50 acres over here and grow melons and sweet corn? Can I create yep. specialty crops, a diversified income stream and, and build that up? And in order to do that, you have to have what Joel Salison calls an, an embryonic development phase, you know, mm-hmm. where you're prototyping something at a minimal phase and building enough customer loyalty um, to make it meaningful and grow on it year after year. And that's what Market Wagon allows you to do. There's no minimums. We don't require farms to be large uh, uh, or have any kind of like minimum supply. So if you want to start with just a couple of hundred hens in your backyard flock and you can only produce 30, 40 dozen eggs a week, that's what you can get started doing. You can create cash flow. You can save that cash flow. You can reinvest it and you can grow your farm organically. And I think it's a, a huge, huge need that we've been able to fill. Uh, amen to that. I, uh, more people need to, I, I am an absolute proselytizer when it comes to trying to save the small family farm. And I, you obviously put your money where your mouth is. This has been a really exciting conversation. Um, let us know, how do people find Market Wagon online? You can find us online at marketwagon.com. There's also an app in the iOS and Android store. Easy enough. Nick Carter, thank you so much for joining Eat Your Heartland Out. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Eat Your Heartland Out. This episode was produced by me, Capri Cafaro. Our audio engineers are Liam Warner and Armin Spengen. Theme music by Jason Shaw. You can learn more about the show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org backslash Eat Your Heartland Out. Eat Your Heartland Out is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.